Welcome to the Dear White Woman podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're discussing intersectional feminism, including what it is and why it matters. So before you listen to this podcast, had you heard of the term intersectional feminism? Because this is Sarah and I totally had not, which is why I am going to have Misasha take the majority of this episode because it's been fascinating to learn more about it. And I had no idea. And I thought that I was a feminist. So <laughs> I don't think you're alone okay. at all. All right. Well, I mean, I still am a feminist, but now this really has opened my eyes to the way that I had been looking at it before. So tell me, can you give a, like a history lesson around what intersectional feminism means? Yeah, we'll do it real quick. Okay. So the word itself was first used by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a civil rights advocate in 1989. So she came up with this term while she was still a student studying to become a lawyer. And she saw that gender and race were looked at as completely separate issues. But to her, that didn't make sense because she saw that women of color, for example, are doubly discriminated against, particularly in law. And you know, I'm a lawyer. I love legal stuff. I like really nerd out on it. You're um, totally crazy. But, but... <laughs> I know. I know. Okay, but it's what I do. It's a strength. Um... It's awesome. I love it. It's so different than me. I love that you have that. <laughs> but this intersectional feminism was really highlighted. And Kimberly Crenshaw used this specific case, which happened in 1976, is the case of DeGraff and Reed versus General Motors. And it's a great illustration of intersectionality. In this case, five African-American women sued General Motors, the car manufacturer, for racial and gender discrimination. But the courts ruled against them and found that because the courts found that women in general weren't discriminated against when it came to jobs as secretaries, because there were a bunch of women who were in those roles, you know, white women. And the fact that General Motors employed African-American factory workers who were men, basically those two facts, the court saw them like, great, there's no discrimination. But as I just mentioned, it ignored the fact that those people who are working for General Motors were either white women or black men. So those black female plaintiffs lost. And I think that's a really great example in a nutshell, because it shows that Yes, there could be women who aren't being discriminated against or blacks who aren't being discriminated against, but it's not necessarily the intersection between the two. And that's really what intersectional feminism means. And, you know, we've talked about Audre Lorde, who is an incredible gay black feminist pioneer. And she famously said, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. That's really the concept of intersectional feminism that we are not bound to a single narrative. And that's normally the white narrative. That's Um, interesting. And I like that quote. We've got some great quotes from her. So I'm excited to hear more. But what does that mean, especially for white women? And I think you came up with sort of three different steps. And so I want to outline these first before you go into them. But step one was realizing, recognizing and addressing white privilege without getting defensive. Step one. Step two was realizing that feminism is really about finding your own voice your own lens, and also listening to others. And then step three is knowing the power of words and being aware of all those microaggressions we've talked about, you know, the words that come out of our mouths. I mean, I've seen it, you know, as a mom, as a woman, I remember, and this is totally different, but being told when I was in a bathing suit, well, you look really good for a mom. And I was like, "Mm, those backhanded compliments, they get you. I mean, that's that concept of microaggression. So being aware of how you say it, I think, is those three steps. But in more detail, please go take it. 
Yeah, so that was a great overview. And so let's take each step one at a time. So the first step is realizing, recognizing, and addressing white privilege. And the key here is doing that without being defensive. Because I think our natural reaction when certain things that we believed for, you know, perhaps our entire lives are challenged is to get really defensive about it and to sort of shield ourselves from any impact that it may have on us or any thought that we have had played a role in this. Right. It's like people saying, well, and correct me if I'm you know, explaining it poorly, but just this idea of, well, my family was still poor, even though we were white, so I didn't experience white privilege. And I think the comeback to that or the counterpoint to that is, yes, but you were never disadvantaged because you were white. Yeah, exactly. And I think if we look at feminism and, you know, Sarah, you identified as a feminist, I do too. But one thing that we have touched on is that the formal study of feminism is largely the study of white feminists in the United States. So it's kind of hard to get excited about that if you're a woman of color, because your voice is excluded from the story. Like if you think about the feminine mystique or the history of women voters or the women trying to get the vote in this country, that's all written by and done by white women, really for the benefit of other white women and sharing what is a white female experience. So I don't know if you've heard the term white feminism before. Nope, Um, not me. Okay. So, you know, I had not heard it sort of labeled as this, but there is a definite viewpoint that goes along with intersectionality that largely, and as we discussed, feminism to date has been the story of white women. So a white feminist and an intersectional feminist probably both believe that all women of all races deserve equal rights and opportunities. That is... A given for everyone. Which I think is important to emphasize because I think I've said, oh, I'm a feminist to men before. And they were like, whoa, you can't say that. Like, I just imagine bra burning and like, you know, really angry people. And I think that that explanation deserve equal rights and opportunities is important to emphasize. It's not some crazy. But it's extreme. not necessarily a radical. It's not sort of the extremes, right? right? There's a lot of feminism that is not that. But so that's the similarity. But the white feminist believes that women being equal mean that all women face identical struggles, regardless of racial identity. Basically, it's kind of like saying I don't see color, but related to women. So I think some aspects of white feminism, like we've discussed previously include the belief that the civil rights movement in the United States, which happened in the 60s, pretty much solved racism. So now everyone's equal and the playing field is level. So that has come up, you know, in viewpoints about affirmative action, especially as we've discussed, younger white women believing that, you know, it's not necessary. We've kind of solved that. That's not true. I think that, you know, we're aware that that's not true. And I think we've talked about why that's not true. And we will continue to talk about why that's not true. Because fear around the discussion of race and acknowledging that this is not true only increases the fear of actual racial differences. It's okay to feel afraid, but it's not okay to discount or exclude others out of that fear. And, you know, as women, we keep coming back to this, but I think because, Sarah, you and I are women and our podcast is called Dear White Women, don't you really hate it when men try to convince you that your experiences or feelings aren't valid? That just irks me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Deep down, deep seated anger. That's kind of like what white feminists do to people of color when they imply that all women's lives fit the mold of a white experience. 
So the key really to intersectional feminism is the belief that women of color face adversity specific to being both female and non-white at the same time. Remember that General Motors case. So like to get a little more granular, how we address issues like street harassment, you know, like people, cat calls, groping, whatever on the street doesn't just matter to all women, but it matters especially to trans women who experience not only more harassment, but significantly higher rates of assault than other women, which was something I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And another component to intersectional feminism is fighting for the raise of the minimum wage because nearly two thirds of minimum wage workers in the U.S. are women, according to the National Women's Law Center. And Mm. yeah, which is like a higher number than I thought for sure. And, you know, if you need more statistics around this, and we'll touch on this briefly now, we'll talk about it more later, equal payday, right, which has really come into like a much larger existence and focus in the past couple of years, I think. But this date symbolizes how far into the year women must work to earn what men earned in the previous year. So if you need another reason to get like frustrated, this is a great reminder of that. This year, for all women, regardless of race, it falls on April 2nd. So it already happened, but just barely. But if you break it out by race, and you know we have a lot to say about this, but we'll take that on later. It is different as follows. For Asian women, it's March 5th, so earlier than April 2nd. But that's not true for all Asian women. It's true for some, but it's an aggregate number. For white women, it's April 19th. Okay, so that's you know, great and terrible. But let's talk about women of color besides Asian women. For black women, that date falls on August 22nd. So you have to work more than half a year extra to get the same pay that men would have gotten in the previous year. Yeah. For Native American women, that date is September 23rd. And for Latino women, that date is November 20th, which is nuts. That's insane. That's like a whole extra year. Like they would earn almost half then, right, of what men would be making. Yeah, it's nuts. I think we can acknowledge that's crazy. So that's just another example. But it's on average April 2nd. So if you didn't break it out, you'd have no idea. And you just assume that it's about four months extra. You know, that's incredible. Right, right. So that this is a great example of how the white female experience is not the narrative for all women. This also means broadening the conversation around reproductive rights. You know, if we acknowledge that there are extra barriers faced by low income and rural women who have limited access to abortion care or to even general health care services when compared to other women, We fail to see the importance of the problem and risk failing to provide solutions to marginalized groups who really need it the most. It's true. Um, It's very, really true. I think that, you know, to break this down into like a simple thing, this is really about acknowledging that there is such a thing as white privilege in the United States and that in order to understand that, we need to educate ourselves about race issues. Somewhat related, and I think we've seen some examples of this fairly recently, When white people put on affectations from other cultures without understanding their origins, this gets into cultural appropriation, which I think is another hallmark of sort of the white feminist experience at times. So just to be really clear, someone else's culture is not a costume. Interesting because for Halloween, one of my kids was like, oh, can I go as a Native American? 
And I was kind of like, they're like, yeah, we can get a feather headdress and all that stuff. And I kind of went, ah, no, I don't think you can actually. And I remember talking to a friend of mine whose husband is Native American and they were like, yeah, please don't do that. Please just don't. Yeah. You don't understand the history, the context. And so I was really glad I had already been told by them once that it was not appropriate. But otherwise, I don't think it would have twigged for me that that was something I should say no to my kids for. Yeah, I think we're about to get a really good reminder of that at Cinco de Mayo. I think this comes up a lot. And uh, blackface, like that's never okay. I think the history behind that is so demeaning and terrible that that's not just no, no. Yeah, we're gonna have to do a thing on that on episode. Yeah, we will for sure. I think that even if you are super internet savvy and you know that these are issues, this is still something that comes as a surprise sometimes. But it's really important if you want to be a true ally to women of color that you're conscious of this, I think. So some examples of this, you know, I think that we saw this when there were riots in Ferguson and in Baltimore about the treatment of black people by police. And there were a lot of white people who came out and said, you know, and used quotes from prominent people of color without acknowledging their full racial and historical context. So for example, the people who used Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness. I think, you know, we're somewhat familiar with that quote. If not, it is a great quote, but that was not intended to refer to a scenario like the riots in Ferguson. In fact, like he was talking in the context of civil rights. It was about protecting and working for civil rights. It was not to tell people not to protest when they felt their rights were being violated. I think that, you know, along with this, it's cherry picking cultural traditions from people of color. I think, you know, if you wear a bindi and you chant peace, love and happiness without understanding the yogi culture in India, for example, that's an example. And I think that that might be a touch point for some people. But I think what we would like to have happen is people like I know I've thought a lot more about what I do to have people take a moment to reflect on what that means to them and what that looks like and what behavior you may think you may need to think about in a different way. Right. And I think what you just said makes a lot of sense. It doesn't have to be a long protracted process every single time, but just that awareness, like now that I know of intersectional feminism and that General Motors case, I feel like I'm just going to be more aware. It's just that aha, like moment even can make a big difference in stopping harmful, potentially harmful behaviors or making a different choice about a costume, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. This one in particular, I feel strongly about because having a person of color as a friend is great, but that's not enough. Um, it's always one of my best friends is whatever, right? Like I have one gay friend or I have one black friend. Yeah. Because the more you focus on that, the more you mention that one friend as the reason why you're not racist or what you've done, your behavior is not racist or discriminatory, the more questionable that sounds. So just because you know, or in my case, you're married to a person of color does not mean that this is a salvation from racism or discrimination or behavior on your part that probably should be checked because trust me, I have to check myself. You know, it's progress, right? It's work. Yeah. I don't think you ever suddenly go, I'm here. I've arrived. I'm free of all, you know, discriminatory practices or bias or anything because it's a constant process because we're raised in this system. I feel like it's just who we are and it has to consistently be a process of awareness. And there's always more to learn and be aware of. 
but just being on that journey, I think is so important. Yeah, totally. And so I think what's important here is sometimes it's really important for white women to stop talking and to listen and absorb what activists of color have to say. So this can look like a whole bunch of different things. It can be about reading what works by women of color. It can be, you know, researching the history of white supremacy and how that has a pervasive effect on our judicial system. Or, you know, we hear a lot of feminist statistics out there. But if you take the time when you hear one, you know, think and ask yourself or ask others, how does this impact women of color? Those are just three ways in which you can start to think about the narrative as one that's inclusive of everyone, not just white women. That's cool. Yeah, I like it. So that's step one. And that is yeah. realizing, recognizing and addressing white privilege without getting defensive. So what's step two? So step two is about finding your own voice, but listening to others. So this is really about finding the common ground where there are drastic differences. So, you know, as an example, you and I are both mothers and, you know, we have between us four kids, but each of our kids are very different and we parent very differently. Our parenting experience has been very different, yet we can understand and support each other as parents while still acknowledging that we are different and that our own experiences and our own views are unique to us and our parenting issues. So I think that, you know, once you've gone through that reflection that we talked about earlier and started to think about, you know, what can I do to be a better ally to broaden that narrative? I think this is really about listening. So listening can mean stepping back sometimes. And I think one thing that we talk about, you and I, Sarah, is the voice that we have and the voice that we have is not the voice of a black woman, for example. You know, advocating for other people's issues doesn't mean speaking for them. So this could be as simple as sharing a Facebook post or giving space, holding space for diverse voices and conversations, whether it's at work, out at drinks, at a play date, whatever it is that you are acknowledging that it's not just one narrative out there. Uh, That's true. I mean, so much of it is reserving judgment, right? Isn't that the part about listening that is the most important is like, not like, I'm going to chime in and top you, you know, you tell me about something with your kid. And I'm like, well, but did you hear about my kid too? Or it's just listening and trying to understand what that person's experience is like, so that you can understand. I wish I had that quote, but it's like, communication is about seeking to understand. Yeah, totally. And I think that the other component to that is being open to listening. Like when you're listening, you're listening openly. You're fighting that urge to be defensive, you know, because you might be hearing things that challenge what you think or push you in certain ways, but really being open to hearing the experiences of others, I think is a real key to this because this may involve having awkward conversations with people you feel are saying problematic things. But part of what we're doing here, getting uncomfortable you know, and having our own uncomfortable conversations is to highlight why these are necessary. Because as we've said, real change doesn't come from complacency. It, it doesn't come from looking the other way. It comes from really getting uncomfortable and digging deep to examine why, you know, change might be a good thing. It's interesting about this idea of conversation and getting uncomfortable, because last year I hosted, and I can talk about this in more detail at some other time, if that's even a thing, but I remember hosting a conversation with four black members of our community addressing a group of our majority white community, basically because there was a need to have conversations about what the black experience like is in our neighborhood because of some 
unacceptable things that had happened. And I was the biracial host, you know, who was asking the questions and leading the conversation and they were willing to be vulnerable in this. And all of us were so nervous and it's just speaking the truth, but you just don't know how it'll come across or how the audience will react. I mean, I had like the stress sweat going on and I was totally, once it got rolling, it was fine. It was super uncomfortable, but the feedback and the people's openness to listen in the audience and ask respectful questions and ask sort of how they could potentially help or do different. It was amazing once we created that conversation, how people felt afterwards. And so it doesn't have to be as big as that. It can just be at a dinner table conversation or whatever, but just it is uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable, but it's so like rewarding afterwards to just learn about difference in any kind of context. It just feels like you're growing and learning. Yeah. And I love that you held that space for different voices, right? And to talk about a different experience, because I think that it's really important to highlight that we're not going to assimilate into the same experience. I think that one thing that comes up at times is that white activists feel like it's their duty to sort of rescue communities of color and save them by encouraging such an assimilation. And that's not listening, really. That's speaking for others. So I love that you gave others a platform to speak in that way. I think that's great. Thanks. All right. So that was step three then. Yeah. So going on to really knowing the power of your words. And we're going to go way more into depth on this. But microaggressions are a big way in which your words, even on a sort of subconscious level, can really be hurtful. And if you're not familiar with the term microaggression, they're small, subtle, often subconscious actions that marginalize people and oppressed groups. It can be defined as brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or not, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults. So, There is, we just mentioned, an intentional, unintentional part. So microaggressions may be due to lack of knowledge. But what we do know is that they cause damage, and that doesn't depend on whether they were done intentionally or due to ignorance. So some examples of microaggressions. A black man's crossing the street. He hears the sounds of door locks clicking closed from the car stopped at the traffic light. So nothing actually said, but it's behavior, unconscious or not, that is directed at him because he's a black man. It's interesting. This actually, I remember being in the parking lot of a supermarket in our area and there was a bunch of people just, you know, like flyers, advertisements for certain things and putting them under the windshield wipers. And I was loading stuff into my car and I hear him a couple aisles over just being like, I'm just doing this. You don't need to lock your doors. I'm not coming to attack you. And that led to me being like, what happened? Are you okay? And he was just saying exactly this happened. Like people were in the parking lot getting out, but then they saw a black man walking and they locked the door instead of getting out to go into the supermarket. And luckily, because I talked to him about it, I mean, we all chatted and I wound up being able to actually, you know, create an opportunity for the school they were advertising for, which was totally unrelated, but like he got angry, he felt it and you could see. And if you constantly have that angry response every day, because of all these things that are happening, your cortisol levels will go up. And of course, people will then have tension and just struggle more. Anyway, sorry for the interjection, because that's a great example. No, I think it's key because I think that people think microaggressions have to be verbal, and they don't. 
I mean, but there are verbal ones like for if a manager, you know, refers to the men in their department by their last names, but calls women by their first names. I know that's happened to me and it's irritating and you notice or a group of faculty members are sitting down for a random weekend meeting, you know, and, and the head thanks everyone for showing up on a weekend and says, you know, I'm glad your wives let you get away for a few hours. So, yeah, yeah, totally dismissing the fact that they could be women in there or anyway, everything. There's so many assumptions that are made there. Right. And you're right. It's the constant toll of living with this and having to constantly think about that. I think what's important here is what you say and who you say it to, because as white people or, you know, people who can pass as white, we sort of have the privilege of deciding that we don't want to think about this difficult, you know, uncomfortable topic. We don't have to because we're not being challenged on that front. But for people of color who live in this world that is based on systems built around racism, they bear the brunt of this every day. So they don't have that option. And this really goes double for women of color. Well, and I think what you're saying here is it ties right into the second point about listening, because I think these microaggressions are when people say, oh, they're overreacting or they're making it all about race. Like people might say they would diminish the effect of the microaggressions or be like, oh, you're just misinterpreting it because you're black or no, it's not about that. Or because you're a woman, you're putting everything into that context. But when you're on the receiving end of it, you know, it's true. This is the easiest part for people, I think, to discount And say, oh, you're overreacting, but it's people's experience. They are the expert of their own life and we have to listen and take that seriously. Totally, totally. And I think that, you know, it's something I worry about for my kids because I had this moment and I told you about this, but when my son was trying out for his baseball team and he came back and said he made the team, but he said he didn't want to play on the team because some kids said something mean to him. And my first thought was like, okay, this kid said something about how he looks, his color of his skin, because he was the only non-white kid out there. And it turns out that this kid totally said something about how he didn't catch the ball or something. But I realized, (laughs) (laughs) so I realized that this is going to be something that he is going to deal with, you know, on a daily basis for the rest of his life, because he looks different. And as a mother, that hurts, because I realized that every time he comes and tells me someone said something or was mean to him, my first automatic thought is because he looks different, because he is mixed race. And yeah, I can't imagine the impact that it has on him or anyone else who is a person of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Do you think that you as a person who is mixed race, but can pass as white, but has a child who looks different, thinks about it more because it's at the forefront of your mind? Or do you think that on average, it's something that people of color think like that's their first response as well. Yeah, I don't like think for your husband. Like, like, does your husband worry about the same? Do you think, or maybe that's not fair yeah, to assume? Well, no, he doesn't worry about it. He assumes that that's true. You know, yeah. like right because that's been his experience. So the fact that I'm coming at it as someone who's biracial but can pass, right? That wasn't my experience growing up. There were a couple of comments directed at me, but it wasn't every single time I walk and you know people are staring at me or trying to move away from me or, you know, locking their doors. But that is his experience. And so he was totally unsurprised by this. Whereas, yeah, which is devastating in and of itself. Yeah, totally. That's interesting. And then I wonder, you know, reactions to black women and oh yeah, right? Like, that's a whole other many more conversations to be had there. too. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what do you think, you know, now that we know a lot more about intersectional feminism, what is something that you would recommend as a takeaway or something we can do differently or think about? I mean, because this is great information. I feel like it's shifted my perspective. Yeah, I think that's a great question because, you know, we really search for concrete takeaways. Um, And I think the best thing that we can do is to really model what intersectional feminism looks like, because you know, we can model it for our kids. If we have kids, we can model it for our friends, our family, anyone we come in contact with. And when I say model, I mean, we get familiar with intersectional feminism. Like we, you know, if you've got kids, you take them to the library, you get out a book about a woman of color, and you read that together, and you share that experience, and you discuss that experience with them. So they're familiar that there are other experiences out there besides the white narrative. If you don't have kids, you go to the library yourself and get that book. You go online and, you know, read articles written by women of color. Read ones that talk about the different experience, something that's different than your own experience. And probably if you're like me, that'll take you down a rabbit hole. And like two hours later, you're like, I was just going to read one article. Now I've read 35. But I think just to continue to model that, to be aware of it, to talk to people about it is so key. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's great. And it goes beyond just reading a book on Rosa Parks, because I think that that is the default, like, book topic, black woman that people talk about when it comes to the civil rights movement. And there is still so much more to learn about her for sure. But, you know, the great book, Rad American Women A to Z, Mm -hmm. is one that we have read. They have... Rebel, there's good young, rebel girls. There's Young, Black, and Gifted, which has men and boys in there, but it has girls and women. There are also online newsletters, like Fortune Magazine has some great ones that are related to race and diversity and really highlight different experiences and different narratives. So you could even subscribe to something like that. So you don't even have to go out and look for it. It can come straight to your inbox. That's cool. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing so much this episode. I learned a lot. No. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. That's awesome. Well, let's keep it up. Let's get uncomfortable together. Sounds great. 